Our message today comes from Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, one of the most persuasive advertising techniques in our day is, I believe, the before and after shot. So think HGTV renovations, Invisalign braces, weight loss programs, fitness routines, skin care, the dangers of smoking. All these topics feature ads that usually use some sort of before and after shot to convince us we need what they're selling us. This goes beyond the world of advertising, of course. So in the last month, we've seen before and after shots of the devastation left by Hurricane Dorian. We've seen presidential candidates argue about how the United States will be better off after they're elected than it was before. And yet, if they would Google President Obama before and after his presidency, they would see how much he aged and probably not wish the same thing on them. Even tonight, we're going to be, as a church, thinking about what has gone before, and then thinking about what the Lord has for us after. Before and after shapes our lives, doesn't it? And before and after is the story of the Christian. So in one of his letters, the Apostle Paul goes so far as to say, we who have been before dead in sin have now been raised with Christ, made alive with him, death to life. Can you imagine a more striking before and after than that? This is the effect the gospel can and indeed must have in the lives of those who follow after Christ. We are changed. We won't live like we used to live. So, church, in light of our congregational vision meeting tonight, which everyone is invited to, uh, we're going to take a break from our current study in the Gospel of Luke and go to these few verses Gracie just read for us in another book by the same author, the book of Acts. Acts is the historical account of the early Christian church after Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 at the beginning has descended upon his followers in power. People think they're drunk. It's so disruptive to the regular routine of life. And the passage Gracie just read, we're going to pick up on the story of how the church is growing. How it's picking up steam, adding believers. There in verse 41, right prior to our text, the 3,000 have just been saved. And now in these verses, we see the change the gospel makes in these new Christians. We see a beautiful description of how the saving power of Jesus Christ works itself out in the early church. 
So three truths for us to see from this text this morning about how the gospel works in a community. First, the gospel teaches us the truth. The gospel teaches us the truth. Second, the gospel joins us together. The gospel joins us together. And third, the gospel is the Lord's work. The gospel is the Lord's work. So first, the gospel teaches us the truth. Look there in verse 42. We see a a kind of summary statement of what the early church, these Christians, are doing with their newfound faith. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Focus there on that first thing, church. The first thing they are doing is devoting themselves, what? To the teaching of the apostles. The apostles were men sent by Jesus to proclaim his message to the early church. They had his special power to accomplish miracles which gave them credibility and pointed to the greater work that Jesus was doing at the beginning of the gospel. We don't have apostles like this anymore. We have their teaching. They were uniquely sent for a period of time, and they go on to write most of the rest of the New Testament, giving the early church and us instruction on how to live our new life in Jesus. But it's important for us, church family, to begin here. Because as we read on in this passage, we'll see radical generosity, radical joy the church has. But before we get there, we need to see the source of it. The source of this generosity and joy, the source of this enthusiasm and service. Church, it's the truth of the gospel. It's not anything the church is doing. It's the thing that has been done to the church. The apostles would be teaching many things, but the foundation of their teaching is the gospel itself. The gospel is the amazing announcement that help has come. That's not good news unless you know you're in need of help, right? And I I think, whether we're Christians or not this morning, I think we all know we need help. Because in our hearts, we know what it is to feel guilt and not know how to relieve it. We know how to feel discontentment, but we don't know how to appease it. We know what it is to feel anger against injustice, both injustice done to us and injustice done done to those we love, but not know how to bring retribution against it. Our hearts are corrupted by sin, and this world is corrupted by sin, and even when we look at the silver lining, we see that we have need for help. The Bible teaches that the reason for this need for help is sin. Sin is rebellion against God and has landed us in deep need of help. We've all indulged ourselves in it. This rebellion is a cosmic sin against a cosmic God, and so it deserves a cosmic-sized penalty. We deserve eternal death because we have sinned against the eternal God. It's really bad news. We need help. And so the cry of the apostles and the cry of the church for the last 2,000 years is, listen up, everybody, help has come. 
God has sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to us. And though he was perfect, die for us, experience a death penalty we deserved for our sin and raise in power to accomplish our redemption. It's the good news of the gospel. Jesus dying for sinners. Jesus rising again to give new life to any who would turn from sin and place their trust in him. This gospel is for each one of us this morning if we will have it. See, friend, the gospel is not merely a religious formula we ascribe to. The gospel is not merely a summer camp sermon we walk forward in response to. The gospel changes our lives. Earlier in chapter 2, Peter has just talked about how Jesus had been loosed from the pangs of death in his resurrection. And the truth is, Christian, we too have been loosed from the power of death. We are alive in Christ. Death to life. Is there a more striking before and after? We cannot live the way we used to live. We have been changed at the most foundational level possible. So, dear friend, if you're here and you've heard this kind of news before and you say you believe it, and yet it's hard for you to see any foundational ways it has changed or is changing your life, you're probably not a Christian. The gospel changes those who trust in Jesus, some quicker than others. But change always comes. And so, dear family, as we think about fellowship and unity as a church, we must always begin by recognizing that our unity and love for each other will never come from shared experience, shared background, shared preferences, even shared lifestyle. Our unity will always, must always, come from the truth of the gospel and the transforming work it has wrought in our lives, bringing us from that death to life. This transforming power is working itself out in the community that's being formed here in Acts chapter 2. They're never going to be the same. And there at verse 43, we see all fear comes upon those who see it. The apostles are teaching, and by God's grace at this stage in the church, their words are being accompanied by powerful signs and wonders. It's not ignorable what's happening. The gospel, truth, changes everything, including how we live together as a church. That's our second point this morning, our longest point. So the gospel joins us together. Look there in verse 42 again. The church is devoting themselves to teaching, and then we read they're also devoting themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. The meaning of that word fellowship has a sense of sharing something in common together. So fellowship for the Christian, like we just mentioned, means sharing together what we all have in common. And what's that? Christ. New life in him. This is what fellowship means for the church. Fellowship is not based on similarities, on kindred spirits, although that can often help what a common grace that is. Fellowship is based on 
Christ. We're really good about talking about fellowship, just like we just talked about the word hallelujah. Fellowship meals, fellowship lunch. I even hear uh, people who don't have any claims to be churchgoers or Christians using the word fellowship just to mean camaraderie and conversation. But for a church changed by the gospel, fellowship means sharing Christ, sharing in Christ with one another, sharing in our common salvation with each other and all it means for our lives. So fellowship is active. John MacArthur puts it this way, the pastor in California. He says, fellowship is the spiritual duty of believers to stimulate each other to holiness and faithfulness. Man, you'll remember our speaker at the men's retreat last week talking about this, right? How fellowship, Christian fellowship, is not just catching up. Not just talking about football this afternoon or the weather this past week. Although those are fine things to talk about. Fellowship means diving deep. Watching out for each other. Pointing one another to the cross. What would it look like for you to have fellowship in that way on Sunday morning? Maybe just at least once. Speaking to somebody and saying, how, how was it really this week? We see in this passage that this sort of fellowship in the early church leads them to break bread together and pray together. Uh, and it's not clear, so it's debated among biblical scholars and Christians of all stripes whether Luke is referring here at the end of verse 42 to simply sharing food or sharing the Lord's Supper together. Honestly, I don't think we really know what that means. I think the most mature folks I read on this said, we don't know. But I also honestly think that doesn't affect the truth of what's going on here. I mean, why do we take the Lord's Supper? One of the reasons that Jesus has made it to be a supper is because suppers show unity and fellowship, right? Eating together portrays a picture of unity and peace. And we take the Lord's Supper, that's unity and peace with Jesus, and then taking it together as his church. I think that same principle, while not an ordinance of Christ, is shown whenever we eat together. We're trying to show our unity and peace. Christians eat together, both at the Lord's table and at our own tables at home. So we see right off the bat here that the early church, changed by the gospel, shared food together, even in their homes, verse 46. Church, the gospel calls us to devote ourselves and our homes to the work of Christ. We share Christ in common, and that joins us together. So you might say the gospel hits close to home. Actually, I think it hits home, right? It hits right where our messy lives are on display. It hits right where we keep things hidden. It hits right where we yell at our kids. It hits right where we miss our devotions. It hits right where we are weeping at the kitchen table in sheer exhaustion and discouragement. The gospel hits there. The gospel opens us up. It's not just hearts and minds that are changed by the gospel, but meals and houses. God owns everything. 
The seemingly mundane things of life are made new by the news of the cross. Look there in verses 44 and 45. Luke writes that all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, to be clear, this isn't a first century mandate for communism or communal living. Uh, If you keep reading in Acts, you'll see that this giving was voluntary. And if they were still eating in their homes, you would assume that they still owned their homes. But let's not take all the punch out of that. This was voluntary giving, but it was sacrificial giving. The gospel makes us generous, doesn't it? The heart that the gospel has irreversibly transformed clings to God, not to stuff. The heart that the gospel has irreversibly transformed clings to Christ, not to wealth. I love the anecdote that the late English pastor John Stott shared about a a minister at a funeral. It had been a wealthy patron, I guess, who had passed away. The minister was asked by someone attending how much the wealthy deceased person had left. And he responded, she left everything. Church, the gospel reminds us that investing in earthly affairs means leaving everything behind. It doesn't mean we shirk those things. It means we use them for the glory of God because investing in eternity means we'll gain everything forever. God owns us now. He's given his son for us. We belong to him, and all we have is Christ. So we are now free to give of ourselves to others since Jesus has given of himself for us. We're no longer like the child on the playground having a tantrum because his favorite toy is being shared by someone else. We generously give because what we have is not ours ultimately, but the Lord's. The gospel reveals what we value. And what we value is Christ. And so people changed by this good news are not possessed by their possessions. People changed by this good news don't belong to their belongings. Church, we are possessed by Jesus. We belong to him. So we don't hold on to our stuff with white knuckles. It all belongs to Christ. The gospel joins the early church together in hospitality and generosity. And church, as I was thinking about this, I don't know if it's just me, but I think we can often talk about this sort of gospel community and generosity as if they're really good things to do. But we just kind of acquiesce to the idea that they're just not the most pleasant things we could do. We could occupy our time with something that actually brings us more personal meaning. But, you know, Jesus gave himself for us, so that's fine. As long as it's, you know, between 4 and 7 on Tuesday afternoon. Getting out of our homes and serving one another might be an obedient thing to do in light of who we are in Jesus. But honestly... Honestly, 
we believe we will get more happiness attending to our own needs, don't we? Gives us insight into why Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Church, remember, God is after your pleasure. God's after your joy. He wants it. He has designed us not just to find adequate happiness in serving him, but full satisfaction and contentment. The early church was serving in this sort of radical way because they had found their greatest joy. Not because they had found their greatest source of obedience. Freedom and joy come from giving of ourselves to our Savior and to his bride, the church that he gave himself up for. Our greatest need has been met in him, and so our hearts are now eager. Maybe not as eager as they should be, because sin dwells closely, but they are becoming more eager in this new nature we have been given to meet others' needs around us. So church, let's not guilt each other into fellowship. Let's challenge each other in light of the incredible joy promised us. That fellowship is an investment in the kingdom, in the kingdom yet to come, in the kingdom given us as a small taste here on earth. Joy will bring fellowship. But with that said, let us challenge each other. I wonder, why, why do we struggle to build true fellowship as a church? It happens. I've been blessed by the fellowship here, so I'm not just putting a down on all of this, but when fellowship is hard, when you feel the lack of it, what, why, why is it that way? Why, why do we need to be so kind of intentional about it? And I thought of a few reasons just off the cuff. Maybe some of them apply to you, so maybe some of them don't. Perhaps, perhaps we're ashamed to let people into our lives. Perhaps we're too busy. Perhaps we're too tired. Perhaps we're introverts. Perhaps we're private people. Perhaps we're attached to our stuff. Maybe we annoy each other. Maybe we believe the gospel, but we haven't done any deep thinking about how it affects our lives. Maybe we sin against each other. And so that makes hanging out with each other pretty hard. Church, all of those have a ring of truth to them. But since we're talking so much about the gospel, let's, let's take each of those things and educate them with the gospel, shall we? Let's start at the beginning. If you're ashamed to let people into your life, remember, church, all your shame, no, seriously, all your shame has been placed on Christ. He bears it all. If you're too busy to grow the fellowship of the community of believers you're a part of, remember, church, that God who created time entered into time and bore your sin on himself so your time could be redeemed for his glory. If you're too busy, everything, should be on the table to give up before him. 
if you're too tired to build up the body of Christ, remember, church, God, often to the surprise and chagrin of his children, works best when you're weak. If you're introverted, conversation comes unnaturally to you. Remember, church, true fellowship goes deep more than wide. Christian fellowship can look more like going deep with one person than it does small talk on a Sunday morning that makes many of you want to just shrivel up and die inside. If you'd rather keep your life private from others, you're a private person, remember, God has given you a new life that is personal, but not private. Your faith, by virtue of its very nature, must reverberate out from you to the glory of God and the benefit of those around you. That's what your faith does. If you're attached to your stuff and you don't want to part from it to bless others, if it just gives you a nightmare to think about and letting your home be invaded by people who are messier than you are. Remember, Jesus has given you a home in heaven. Can you imagine how unmessy that place is? He has given you greater treasure than any of the stuff that might have grubby hands on it in fellowship of the church. If you're annoyed by others and you annoy others, remember, church, no one will be annoyed in heaven. So let's prepare for that reality now by being patient and gentle with each other. If you find it's, it's simple to believe the gospel, to kind of know the doctrine of the gospel that we hold so dearly, but you, you have a hard time thinking about how it affects your daily life, remember, church, the gospel gives you a prayer for that. I believe. Help my unbelief. If you've been burned by the sin of other Christians and that holds you back from giving yourself in fellowship because burning will happen again, remember, church, it will. Don't be surprised. But don't worship those that you give yourselves to in the church. Worship the Jesus who is not only burned but condemned for your sin. And if he has forgiven those around you, why shouldn't you? Dear church, if the gospel is true, it changes everything. So ask yourself, if you weren't a member of Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, how would our fellowship be different? Would your absence leave a decrease in fellowship? Would fruit that has been born because of you and the Holy Spirit working through you be missing if you weren't here? It's a good litmus question to ask. Our love for one another, our joining together in the gospel and the fellowship we share in common with Jesus is one of the ways good news of the gospel must impact our lives. And people will see that. You see a glimpse of that in verse 47? As a church is living this way, they have favor with all the people. That won't always be the case. But it gives us a glimpse of how the way we act with one another is noticeable to those who watch. 
In John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. People notice when lives are changed by the gospel. All right, let's conclude with our final point then, briefly. Who is it, will do, who, who is it that will do all this stuff, ultimately? You know, is this just kind of a guilt session where I'm up here being like, let's do better, church, and then we go and just pray that God helps us do better? Yeah, maybe a little bit. But who's it ultimately up to? Is it up to us and our abilities to create the community that we see in Acts 2? Not necessarily all those things, like we're not going to be communists, but the principle is below there. Generosity, hospitality, love, care, affection. Our final point this morning is that the gospel is the Lord's work. And what a great place to end up. Look there at the end of verse 47. And the Lord, who? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a wonderful way for Luke to describe the revival going on in Jerusalem in the first century A.D. Getting, church, getting the subject of that sentence right makes all the difference, doesn't it? It isn't ultimately the church that's adding members. It isn't ultimately a new program or effort that's bringing in new converts. It's the Lord working through what he's already working through in the lives of his church to bring more people in. It's his work. I was thinking about our, our church a few weeks back, and I was reading through Genesis 1, right? Many of you just pick up your Bibles and turn there. It's the first thing. Even though as, as I had read it many times before, it struck me afresh how the subject of all the action in that opening chapter of history, the subject of all of the action is the Lord. He creates the heavens and the earth. He says, let there be light and there's light. He creates, and it is done. In church, the same is true for the new creation of Christ. So the same God who spoke life into being in Genesis 1 spoke life into the church in Acts 2 and speaks life even this very minute into Loudoun Valley Baptist Church in 2019. It's his work. When the voice of the sovereign speaks, no one can resist it. Matthew Henry writes on this text, it is God's work to add souls to the church, and that is a great comfort both to ministers and Christians to see it. Be comforted, church. This isn't ultimately on you. Yes, you must be obedient. Yes, you must strive in hospitality and generosity to honor the Savior who gave himself for you. But all of that is his work. Even your very desire to obey is from him. The Lord's work is the growth of the church. That's the truth that motivates our service. That's the truth that motivates our fellowship. That he who has begun a good work in us will complete it at the day his son returns to call us home. The Christian life, therefore, is full of restful labor and strenuous peace.
We run hard after Christ, knowing he's got us all the way. So LVBC, we got a vision meeting tonight. We're going to celebrate God's faithfulness. And there's a lot there to look at. We're going to look ahead to what we believe he can do in the next three years. But when it's all said and done, we're, and we're back home tonight, and the lights are starting to turn off, and we're getting sleepy, the Lord will still be at work. He is the one who will grow our church. We must look to him. Our faith is never primarily about what we do, but about what has been done for us. Jesus will build his church. He has promised. So that's why I titled this sermon not Community Building or How to Grow a Healthy Church. Fine titles. But the Lord added. What a joy to end there. Seeing the gospel as the work of the Lord in us. So church, going forward, let's dive deep into the gospel. And let's take one another along with us. Let's pray. Our Lord, we know that we need you. And so we welcome this reminder amidst all the gospel imperatives of hospitality and generosity that you are the one that builds your church. We rest in that. And we work in that. Lord, if you weren't in control of the growth of this church, then what, what joy would we have in working for the growth of this church? Since you are the the main worker behind everything, Lord, we labor with pleasure. Equip us. Strengthen us. May those around us be different because this church exists. For your glory. Amen.